In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, that's LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. So step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony, and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. So join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings, and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. And this week, I am proud, more proud than ever, in fact, to be joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and now Starkville's official poet laureate, Doug Glanville. Uh, and Doug, uh, before we welcome in our friend Ken Rosenthal to talk about the sad state of labor affairs in baseball, let's talk about you. Uh, you've been such an important voice in our sport and in our culture over the past week. Uh, let's, let's start there. Uh, last week was a week unlike any that most of us, maybe any of us, have experienced in our lifetimes. Tell me what it was like for you and your family. Yeah, Jay. I mean, it, it's um, I I use the word roller coaster, but in some ways that's too linear because it, it's so it's also so many different directions. And you know, I, I my life has uh, always been something that I prioritize to be versatile, to engage in so many different places and levels. And I think what's happened to our country has forced us all sometimes out of our own comfort zones, but also into spaces that we didn't expect to find ourselves and. For me, you know what what's converged is a life in uh, a town growing up in a town that was super diverse and inclusive and is committed to that in the sixties uh working with law enforcement uh at this stage in my life, but also how they were the law enforcement was part of my life early on in baseball and loving sports and always uh believing that we should not stick to sports <laughs> in certain scenarios for sure that you know I've always spent time engaging on so many of these issues that make sport in a way elevate sports to be part of the solution because i i believe that the lessons of sport are aspirations that our country should aspire to at, at its best and i think now i look at it this way we're 
you know, we're a team as a country, as a nation. And although baseball may be non-essential or, you know, baseball is something that we could debate on whether, you know, should play or shouldn't play. What is essential is the spirit of team right now as Americans, as, as a country, as a nation. And, you know, you can never get enough of those lessons on how teams can uplift us. So, so I've, you know, and, and so I had this opportunity to write this essay and, you know, I love writing and my father, who's from Trinidad and Tobago, used to, you know, even he was, although he's a practicing psychiatrist, he would disappear in the middle of the day and just write poetry. He would just like get inspired and be gone and then come back. I remember I went to, in Birmingham, the Civil Rights uh, Institute, I, I, it might be a museum, let me think about it, Civil Rights Museum, Civil Rights Institute. And, you know, you're right there where the hoses were sprayed on young people of color who was marching in protest and, and organizing. And, and all of a sudden, we go in this museum and it's really powerful if you've never been. And my dad just disappears. You know, he's like, I got to write. I mean, just, so he would do this. And I always appreciated his poetry and I'd read it, but it wasn't until he passed that I started understanding the power of writing and how in some ways it was therapeutic for me because it brought him back in a way. He was sitting on, a, on, on my shoulder at a different motivation. And writing became such a big part of my life with all my career choices. And, and then I got this perfect storm, and I, and I say it uh, the word perfect loosely, but really imperfect storm of what our country is experiencing. But it did fall in line with a lot of the things that I've fought for and cared about, and that is bringing us together, but also challenging us around issues of social importance and how it comes together through sport. And so I taught this class the last three years, and uh, you know, with George Floyd and our country responding to George Floyd's death and. And at the hands of police, we started to have a larger conversation. And, and ESPN, outside the line, said, hey, do you want to try to take a shot at um, writing an essay? Do you want to try to write this essay? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> this was this was something I wanted to do. And so after um, a few days, we we kind of put something together. Let's talk about this essay, because I, I, I've... You know, I've thought of you as many things in the more than two decades that we've known each other. But before the last few days, uh, I never thought the word essayist was the word I would use to describe you. But this was so powerfully and beautifully written and produced. And uh, before we talk about it, I I think let's hear a brief excerpt so people get a sample of the Doug Glanville essay for ESPN's Outside the Lines. We have had enough time to change, but too many times the light did not illuminate because we shielded our eyes from the reflection we did not want to see. We are eight minutes and 20 seconds too late, and George Floyd is eternally non-responsive because we were non-responsive. So let's respond and make his death be our light. Woo, spectacular. Um, All right, I want to ask you this as both your friend and a fellow writer. How hard was it to write that? Um, You know, as deeply as, you know, you clearly have been feeling and processing all those thoughts Sometimes the act of writing them down can be extremely challenging, uh, but other times it, it's like all of it pours out of you like a waterfall. Which of those two is this? 
Yeah, I'll tell you, it was it was kind of both. I I um I, I took a minute to figure out thematically what I would do. I wasn't really sure, actually. I I uh, sometimes you get inspired, and sometimes, but I, it was sort of an assignment. And they're like, "Okay, we want to work on this." So I had in my mind a deadline, and sometimes that's a hard way to work, right? You do it all the time, but when you're trying to get in that creative prose, you kind of get stuck because you're like, "Oh, I got to do this by tomorrow. I have to what's what's the right phrasing?" And then I just had an idea. I said, "Well, everybody has spent a lot of time talking about, you know, George Floyd being in this horrific." Uh, knee on your neck position, and and obviously it led to his passing. And I, the time became so important. The timestamp, eight minutes, and you know, forty forty eight seconds, forty five seconds. 40, you start counting all these different. And I went online and I typed in, "What takes eight minutes? Just what is eight? <laughs> what takes eight minutes in our world?" I just started. I didn't know what I was going to find actually. And it turned out that it takes eight minutes on average, eight minutes and 20 seconds for the sun and the sunlight to reach from the sun to earth. And then I started thinking about, that's it. That's that's the theme because you talk about enlightenment. You talk about all the ways that the sun plays this obviously critical part of our lives and existence. And 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 it also is a, exposes things. It, it opens our eyes. It And it just made sense. And so... Yeah, it was hard because, yeah, I mean, there was times I got choked up writing it and trying to think because it's so personal and, and so many ways that um, our country is in pain. And and I guess for my life, I've, I've spent my whole life living behind what I've believed to my core of the experience I had growing up in Teaneck, just believing that, you know, I had a 30-year high school reunion of a diverse group of people as we always have been. And we had access and connected with each other like we had never left. And I was like, well, how are they able to sustain this intimacy across so many lines of of culture and religion after 30 years of being exposed to the world that's not necessarily as harmonious? So I really dug into that. I dug into my father's poetry. I thought about my mom's activism as a civil rights leader in, in my hometown, and it, it sort of came together. So, uh, but when I put it together, you know, at the end, as you as you played, yeah, you know, the, the part about enough became. A, a sort of uh, rally cry, almost an anthem. And the first time I, dra- I drafted it, it was almost it was like a preacher. I kind of did one after the other. Enough time to enough. To, and, uh, and then I said, well, maybe we need some space for imagery. And we started thinking through it. But I wanted to emphasize that you could change anything and so many things in just eight minutes. You could. It's just and what right. you know. One of the things that we 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 you know we cut that down a little. It was enough enough time not to send that tweet. You know, we kind of had just, I had a long list, enough time to not, you know, to stop profiling, enough time. And it just kind of kept going. So, you know, we, we, the process was really powerful. You know, there, it, there aren't that many occasions in your life where forces converge around you, where you find yourself writing, expressing something like that. And, uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't know if you've been thinking those thoughts all your life. I know some of them you have. Some of them just come to you in the process. But um, as you express them, wow, yeah, it's hard not to get swept up in every word, every thought, every feeling, uh, every emotion, uh, every contemplation of what should come next. Um, 
And I, I can tell you, I, you know, I watched this uh, online as, you know, as soon as you wrote it, as soon as you sent me the link. But uh, over the weekend, my wife and I sat down and watched it again on the uh, big screen. Uh, she immediately started sending links to it uh, to everybody she knew. So you you reached her, uh, but you reached so many others. Um, last time I looked, that video had been viewed about 600,000 times just on Twitter. And uh, who knows how many thousands of more times on Facebook, YouTube, all the different platforms. But more than that, I, I feel like it started a conversation. And that, of course, was the whole idea. So... One more question. What's the most powerful reaction to it that you've experienced so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, fortunately, there's been so many. I, I, I don't know if I could even, you know, rank. I, I think the, the power has just been maybe the number of people and the diverse, uh, diversity of response that I've, I've heard that has been you know, positive. Um, I think the you know I, you know how it is as a colleague, you you realize that there's other colleagues paying attention to your work more than you realize, and yeah. you say, oh wow, I mean, and they whether they retweeted it or posted it or just took it in their own words, uh, yeah, I mean, someone like Ian Khan, for example, who we both know, who played Washington in the the great AMC series Turn, he yeah. uh, he wrote a beautiful, I mean, he, he wrote a beautiful link, uh, tweet to it. But the other thing about Ian is he. Uh, when I lost, uh, when I was laid off a while ago at ESPN, he sent me this amazing analogy to George Washington's struggles being a general. Uh, <laughs> you know, just, I mean, that was just you know amazing, and and so, but you know, the challenge and where I actually feel comfortable in strange way is that is threading the needle. My life has been kind of threading the needle. You, whether it's you know, my dad was an immigrant from Trinidad, my mom from Jim Crow South, and trying to figure out but they were first generation college and going up in a town that was committed to inclusion and but then you know navigating a place where as you expand you see that so much of of the racial dynamics in our country make it very tough because you can you could be looked at and criminalized or you can you know it's so different than the the meritocracy as you start unearthing some of that and that's sort of the pain of America right now to, to make sure that meritocracy is afforded to everyone. And, and so those sentiments that resonated with people, you know, whether it's people telling me that they were in tears when they watched it, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful because at the heart of it, even with these difficult issues, is this concept of team. It is this concept of, of coming together, even through this pain. It is this concept of, you know, believing in something bigger than self and, and, and doing the work that we need to do to make our, our country a more perfect union. It's always uh, a work in progress, and we're, we're not perfect. And that striving to be it or just more be better is, is, is a driver to what we can do differently moving forward as long as that's uh, you know, afforded to all of us. So, um, so I, I just, yeah, I, I just taking the moment, because as you said, it really came together around something I've been passionate about my whole life, about you know people and i you know i just think it, i just got this opportunity and quite frankly it is we're in a pandemic and that is part of it it's that the fact that places that would stick to sports are not sticking to sports and i've been shouting that from the rooftops since day one that sports transcends sports is important to have this conversation and now because there's no sports 
we're actually having this conversation. And I, I, I don't think we should underestimate why that our country is facing things now in a different way because we don't have that outlet in a certain way. And some of that is, some of that has actually opened some of these conversations up. Yeah. How ironic is that? Huh? Um, well, I'm, I'm proud of you, man. I know I keep using that word proud, but I'm, I'm proud of you. Those are words that needed to be expressed and needed to be heard. Uh, this, this has been such an important moment in America. I'm glad you were around to help us make sense of it. And, uh, now, all of us need to think long and hard about where we go from here, because where we've been, how we've been doing this just isn't good enough. Uh, so let's say that word one more time. Enough. Uh, okay, now one more thing before we bring on Ken Rosenthal. As I said, last week was quite a week. Uh, we produced a special edition of this show to allow you to hear an eloquent group of Recently retired African-American baseball players express what these events in America meant to them. Doug Glanville moderated that conversation. Uh, then Doug Kin and I all weighed in before and afterwards. Uh, be, please check that out if you haven't heard it. Uh, as I mentioned on that show, the first thing we did in our house after we heard their words was donate to the Jackie Robinson Foundation because that's a reminder that baseball has always played a role in race relations in our country and it needs to do that now more than ever. Um, also, as many of you know, last week was a tough week for all of us here at The Athletic. 46 incredibly talented people, uh, many of them writers that you read were laid off. Uh, and all of us here feel that. Uh, as I wrote on Twitter. We don't just have a staff at The Athletic. We have a family. We have a team. And when something that painful happens within our family, we feel it. Uh, so we'll miss every single teammate that we had to wave goodbye to last week. And we hope that every one of them finds a way to keep doing what they do so well. Uh, it's also a reminder, these are difficult times in our business in general. According to the New York Times, more than 36,000 people in our profession have either lost their jobs or had their salaries reduced during this pandemic. That's just one more reason I subscribe digitally to 10 local papers across America. At times like this, we need the information that those local news outlets provide more than we ever have. So if you can, please support and subscribe to some source of local news in your community. It truly makes a difference. Absolutely. Doug, these are precarious times in baseball. So who better to help us make sense of them than our good friend, Ken Rosenthal. Ken, welcome back one more time to Starkville. You've now been here so many times. I have huge news for you. You ready? Go. Uh, the beloved Inn at Starkville now has a Ken Rosenthal suite. Uh, it's going to include extra mints under the pillow, special amenities just for people under five foot five. Um, we're talking about low that's, ceilings. That's enticing. Now, now yeah. we're going to get into the enticing mode. We got low ceilings, man. We got slippers <laughs> that do not fit tall people. Stuff like that. Well, <laughs> so, as small as I am, Jason, I'll let you know something that really – revealing yeah. it's bad enough that i'm five foot four and a half or whatever who knows on what day i might be but my shoe size is a seven 
which is pretty pathetic. It's borderline. <laughs> they actually sell shoes that small. That's impressive. Well, well, not easy to find actually, because it's at the very, very bottom of the scale of men. Yes. No, because yeah, no. yeah, my son, my son is is right there. Uh, but remember, remember, <laughs> He's remember, 11. Mark, well, my, Mark, <laughs> well, Mark Parrot. Remember Bernie, Mark Parrot. He was sure he was did, like yeah. six. He had size nine feet, and he was like six six or five or something. So, yeah. you know, you never know. <laughs> That's, that is wild. Uh, all right, let let's talk about your favorite topic and ours: the baseball negotiating war. That's going pretty smoothly, as always. Um, uh, Ken, you wrote an incredible column on this over the weekend. Uh, the headline read like this. July 4th is gone, but baseball remains as far from a deal as ever. This was so good. Uh, so much great reporting in it. Uh, just a million things we could get into. But uh, we should start with MLB's latest proposal, which was made Monday. Uh, I'm still not sure why they wasted all last week, suggesting they didn't plan to make a new proposal, but they did make one this week. Tell me what you made of it, Ken. Jason, on the surface, it looks to me like a point where you can negotiate off of. But the union is not happy with the offer. They see it as not necessarily a step forward. And if people have been reading me, they've read about these agents who are dissenting and think that maybe the union should take a different strategy. Well, those dissenting agents and the union are pretty unanimous right now in the early reporting I've done that this offer is not a step forward, that it offers the players about the same guaranteed money as the first offer. The only difference in their mind, well, the major difference is that instead of $200 million extra, if the postseason is completed, it's $400 million. And what the players say is it's too much to ask of them to share that much risk. And that's why they're not willing to entertain that idea. And also, they want 100% of their prorated salaries. And obviously, we know that Major League Baseball has yet to make an offer even close to that. This offer is 75% of their prorated salaries over a 76-game season. Now, it seems to me, and I'm speaking a little bit off the top of my head because I need to talk to some more people, but it seems to me the union has a choice here. Negotiate off of this, make a counteroffer, and then they start going back and forth, which is what they should have been doing since, I don't know, April. Or, or simply say <laughs> no, no, no again, and ultimately end up with the 50 or so game schedule that the commissioner, by virtue of the March 26th agreement, has the right to impose. And they can simply, at that point, well, they cannot simply at that point say, we're not playing, sorry, that would be an illegal strike. So if that happens, say a 50-game season, 48, 54, whatever the number is, the union would not have to, to agree to expanded playoffs. Baseball would lose a lot too because anything that they would be getting in a negotiated settlement, they would not be getting in an imposition that the commissioner has the right to exercise. So there's still every motivation to come together and get a settlement, but Again, it looks like two things here. You either negotiate if you're the union or baseball does what it's going to do and maybe you file a grievance and maybe you win, maybe you don't. But that results in a shorter season, which seems to me is not really in the best interest of anybody. Well, we'll talk about that. You know, it, it seems to me that there are definitely elements in this proposal that are worth talking about. 
but I thought there were elements in the union's last proposal that were worth talking about. Uh, to talk about them, you'd actually have to have a conversation, which which isn't what this is. Um, you know, the other night I was flipping through my cable TV lineup, and I came across the legendary Marx hmm. Brothers film, Horse Feathers. In that film, Groucho Marx sings a song that sums up these negotiations. I'd like to have the mayor just play us a <laughs> sad song. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. There you go. <laughs> That's Groucho. Uh, whatever it is, I'm against it. I love that song. I played it for Ken before, but we play it here because it just brings us to a possible scenario that you just touched on and we've both been hearing about quite a bit in the last four last few days, and that is just this idea that Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball, could just announce a schedule in the 50 to 60 game range and then basically force players to report and play. Um, I mean, the good news is there will be baseball. The bad news right. is how likely is it, do you think, that this is what Rob Manfred winds up doing? Uh you think it could actually be a dangerous idea to force players to play? It would be a dangerous idea. And keep in mind, we have to use this as a backdrop always. There's a collective bargaining agreement to be negotiated in 2021. The current deal expires December 1st, 2021. And that's the backdrop to all this. That's part of the reason the union is being so adamant. They want to show strength here as they go toward those negotiations. So if you impose 50 and the union likely files a grievance, and you have this animosity, well, that's not healthy. Now, even if you reach a negotiated settlement, the way this has gone, I would expect there'd still be a lot of animosity because it's just the way these things seem to be right now. They're not going to be agreeing on much, etc. So you can make the case, well, what's the difference, right? From the player's perspective, they're going to be ticked off either way. But at the same time, what I would say is that the negotiated settlement is far preferable. You get expanded playoffs. You get just a number of things, for instance, like the lifting of draft pick compensation on free agency for this year. Union doesn't get that otherwise because it would be, again, just an imposition of that schedule. That would be it, not an agreement. So it's in the interest of both sides to reach a settlement. Now, the union will say, and I've had this conversation with them. When you say that, when you say we have to compromise, that means you're essentially taking their side because we, in our minds, believe we're entitled to 100% pro rata. Okay, I get that. But at the same time, these are the choices in front of you now. How do you react to those choices? And that's for them to decide. Yeah, exactly. And you know, normally we have Doug ask questions. I, I think we should ask Doug, a question here. Now, <laughs> Doug, you're a former player in the big leagues. You're a former player rep for the union. If you were playing now, how would you react to this idea that Major League Baseball could just announce a schedule and say, you're reporting such and such a date. We're going to start such and such a date. You better show up and play. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and this may be spun back to Ken, is how how do you impose that type of will given we're in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, you know, yeah, you could say players could elect not to play, but it it sounds very strong arm to say, 
uh, we're just going to, this is how it's going to be, and this is you need to report. When we're also weighing the health consequences of a lot of things, that is woven into this agreement. I don't care, you know, they have a 67-page document, but there's a lot of information that's going to continue to flow in. So that imposition is going to be something that the players are going to circle around and say, wait a minute, now this, that you're telling us under these circumstances, and we're taking certain risks for a product, and we all want this product, but at the same time, that that starts to push it into a different realm. So I think that that's going to be uh, very curious. And I know you know I've written recently about this idea of what it would take to play. I always had a lot of confidence in the negotiating process. Yes, you may not get everything you want, but it's always better if you come together and have an agreement. You don't get all the things, but you get some sort of middle ground. The game has been fairly healthy, even with the saber rattling for 25 years. No, no labor stoppage, no strikes, no whatever. So I would lean heavily on the end result on that. And there may be personal decisions from deciding to play or not, health considerations, whatever it may be. But I, imposition, that word is going to not do well because as you mentioned, you're playing at a, a sort of a discount off your salary, prorated uh, is going to make sense to players because that's the agreement and they're afraid of anything that's going to suppress salaries or caps. Once you go down that road, uh, you're going to lose a lot of people. Well, let's make this clear. Um, the players would have no choice but to play if that's the strategy that Major League Baseball wound up uh, imposing on them. You, uh, they're not allowed to strike in the middle of a labor deal, as Ken mentioned. That would be illegal. So they could file a grievance. They could go to court, whatever. But in the meantime, they would have to play under whatever conditions had been imposed on them. And that brings up another interesting question because, uh, you know, I wrote a column a week or so ago, uh, which I basically begged the powers that be on both sides not to drive this sport off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So I've been retweeting it every yes, day. Every day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and people, it's amazing how many people respond to it every day. But somebody said to me in the last week, I'm not sure the cliff exists anymore. That's what he said. And what he meant yeah. is yeah. If, that, that they're just going to force the players to play if they can't make a deal. So here would be my question for you guys. Do you, uh, I mean, do you agree that there's all of a sudden there's really no cliff? Because then you, when we have to <laughs> contemplate how much damage has already been done, how much damage would be done if they play, but they haven't reached agreement. It's a good question, Jason. And if the cliff you're talking about is the cliff of no season, I would say that cliff is not going to happen. There's going to be a season of some length. Just is a question now of how do you get there. But I would suggest a 50-game season with no agreement would be dangling off a cliff. <laughs> I don't know exactly the <laughs> yeah. right yeah. parallel or analogy here, but it's not good. And Doug said it, if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're thinking about this and doing this, not good. So there is already damage that has been done. I don't believe there's any question about that. Now, will fans come back? Sure, they'll come back. They love the game. We all love the game. But at the same time, that cliff does exist to the same degree. And maybe, Jason, if you're not driving off the cliff right now and you're only going that halfway over, well, the 2021 CBA negotiations represent the full cliff. And is anyone or should anyone be confident based on what has happened here that that's going to go well? I don't think so. 
Yeah, and, and you know, players concerned about the structure. I mean, that's generally the key. And as you said, going into 2021, they want to build on a structure that falls in line with some of the key things that they've fought, you know, since the dawn, right? The whole idea of, of uh, you know, well, the prorated salary is part of it, but it's structurally not having caps and all these things. So that that is the concern for players going into 2021. And and we're also in unprecedented day. So we say they they have to play. Yeah, maybe they're mandated, but it doesn't mean it, it will stop players. If they got together and said, we're, we're not showing up, at all. And yeah, it might be a violation, but you know, then you have to go through the court process and all that. Like, I don't know. I don't know how far people are willing to drive to the edge of that cliff, given what we're facing right now. So, you know, everything is unprecedented right now. So, you know, a mandate saying you have to play is one thing, but it's another thing that, that what players collectively may do if they're so grossly dissatisfied with this. So, um, we'll see because, you know, we think of PEDs, right? We, discussions of reopening collective bargaining and having addendums. I mean, that was unprecedented to go back and try to address something. But there was so much political pressure that it changed things. So we'll see. But uh, it's not it's not pretty right now. Uh, definitely concern. Uh, I do think they will play, but it's, it's not pretty today, at least. And I, I'll tell you, personally, I don't like having I don't like hearing all the talk of 2021 when it's only 2020. I don't feel like this is the time to be having that fight. 2021 is the time to have the 2021 fight. And a big reason is just the backdrop in America. You know how sometimes you fly across the country on an airplane? You're in the aisle seat. That passenger over at the window seat shuts the shade. So you can't <laughs> see what that country looks like around you. That's kind of how I view this. Uh, like right. My advice to them would be, could you open the window? <laughs> how, how can they not look around them and realize this isn't the time for this fight? Can you talk to these sides all the time? Tell me that. I believe, as I wrote, that they're trapped in the past, trapped in the relationships, trapped in everything that has gone on in the last five to 10 years in this particular grouping. Mm -hmm. And that prevents them, I guess, because of the people involved from picking up their heads and saying, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? And I get it. We all are locked in in what we do to a certain extent at all times, even during pandemics. But my issue here is that they have failed to see the greater good. And I don't know what percentage of blame which each side deserves. I'm not apportioning it out. I don't think it's 100% one way or the other. I will tell you that much. But from the beginning, this should have been looked at as an unprecedented one-off situation. How do we fix 2020? What are we going to do? That's it. Not that complicated, in my opinion. And as you wrote, Jason, and this is the thing that maybe ticks me off the most, they made one agreement and then they can't agree on what they agreed on. Right. And right. whose fault is that? Not me, you, Doug, or any fan out right. there. Right. That's on them. Hey, fellow Starkvillians. Evil Mayor Cam here to tell you about Hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrate creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. 
Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There is no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com slash stark. That's drinkhydrant.com slash stark, all one word, for 25% off your first order. Ken, here's a question. I mean, do you, how much of this is the fact that it is played out in the public domain, right? If they, if they locked themselves in a room and there wasn't all these leaks and tweets and all this other stuff, and we were none the wiser, I know it's our job to be wiser, Mm -hmm. uh, and then they pop up like, you know, June 15th after Father's Day or something and says, hey, we've come up with an agreement. Like, I think it's the public domain. And I remember Don Fear, you know, I worked on his executive subcommittee. He didn't even try to deal with the press. First, he didn't think he had a shot of any balance at the time. A lot of teams were owned by networks or whatever. But he also wanted to always educate the constituents. He focused on the players, their knowledge, and everything else was in-house. But it wasn't, you didn't have players have social media and everybody can say their own thing. So they had a little bit more control over it. But because of that, the owners still had an advantage in the press. But then whenever we came up for air, it, it was meaningful. It wasn't like, ah, oh, I'm going to say that. Oh, tomorrow it's changed. So that, that's a different era. And, and I wonder if all said and done, this gets done. Will we remember uh, all this? Not just we, but will the players and the owners remember uh, how much public opinion starts to shift against them? Well, this is a tricky one to answer for me because I'm a reporter and I'm trying to gather information <laughs> and that's my job. So when people complain about the leaks, well, I can only complain so much because <laughs> I'm trying to get them. And it's also, I should make this clear, it's also not always as strategic as people think like this guy gives this guy something sometimes it is that and it's pretty darn naked when you get when that happens you can probably figure it out but it's not always like that and to your greater point doug if this was done privately would it be better yes i can say with some confidence i would think things would be a little bit smoother but that's not the way it's going so again it's tough for me to talk about because i'm in not the middle of it, but I'm on the periphery of this, I guess you'd say. And again, it's not my problem in a way. You know what? It's the people leaking or the people letting the information out. It's their problem. And if they choose to do that, well, they have a reason for it. And that's the way they're going to play it. You know, I like to mention to people that we are reporters. We work for the media. We're in favor of people talking to us and telling us stuff. <laughs> right. So, right. So there is that element of it that's never going away. But Look around at the other sports. They get enough information out there. And but but obviously they're they're not spending anywhere near as much time trying to position themselves so the other side looks bad. So that's one of the elements of this that's that's so upsetting. The other point to me is just that there's no sense of common purpose. I, I think I've referred to yes. this before, right? But you mentioned Don Fear. Uh, Don Fear now runs the Hockey Union. Uh, he told Sports Business Daily uh, a couple weeks ago he's never had a negotiation like this one in 40 years of doing it because they the two sides started out by agreeing 
This pandemic isn't anybody's fault. We can't control it. It just happened. So there's no sense of either side trying to win. I need ABC. You need XYZ. It's just we've got a problem. Let's figure out how to solve it together. Has there been any sense <laughs> of that in baseball? If there is, I missed it. I agree. And that's kind of my complaint. And Jason, your complaint. And I would imagine a lot of fans' complaints are wrong. Not the time for this. And if it was not the time during the pandemic, and I felt it then, given what's happened in the country in the last two weeks, which we talked about on our last podcast, and just in general, it gives me almost, I don't want to say a headache, but it makes me cringe to think this is where the sport is. This is not where we should be. And again, it's a little different than the NBA and NHL because their seasons are nearly complete. So it's not as complicated a negotiation. Okay. That said, this shouldn't be that complicated either. And we have in front of us seemingly elements that could push toward a deal if the other side, in this case the union, because they're the ones getting this proposal, if they choose to negotiate off of it. Yeah, Let's, no, exactly. And, and you know, it's it's social consequence, and that that's a tough thing. And you have, um, you know, so much of the chorus of stick to sports, and there's no sports, right? You And now you're trying to engage with a social sensitivity to what's happening. And generally, a lot of that has been pushed to the fringes historically with a lot of sports, right? And now, you know, basketball, football have obviously taken much more front seat uh, just because, partly because of the demographics of their athletes and so on. So baseball has, has always had a different flavor to this, a little slower role, a little bit different makeup. And they're starting to kind of try to in, engage more with Tyrone Brooks at MLB office, Billy Bean and so on. So it's, it's, it's also reflective of that, like you said, the tradition of the battlefront that's existed. All the labor gains happened from dispute and strikes and lockouts and fights and courts. That's pretty much what it was built. And then you have this like peace, but it feels like a calm before the storm. And now you're seeing a lot of the old sort of guard, bad blood kind of come forward. And, you know, I know Commissioner Manfred frames it as sort of a, it's a negotiation. It's not necessarily a fight. Uh, and that's how he's hopefully going to finish it in a way that they come to an agreement. But yes, the ball is in the player's court. They can negotiate off of it and then try to live to fight another day or live to negotiate another day in 2021. Well, with your analogy, Doug, it feels like it's all storm and no calm, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll examine that some other time. I, I'd like to ask Ken about some of the details that he wrote about in his column. Uh, start with, with the very first part of it. Uh, July 4th. What a beautiful dream that would have been to start on July 4th. Uh, you just do the math in your head. There's just not yeah. enough time to possibly start then. So you wrote this. They've blown the chance to be back by July 4th and have the stage to themselves. So what do you think is a realistic date now to restart, Ken? <laughs> Tell me when they're going to get a deal. <laughs> we know <Can't>. <laughs> it's roughly a month from when they get a deal. So I would say mid-July if they get moving. If they don't, August 1st, go to 50. There are some people who believe on the player's side that they'll be simply running out the clock, that they really want 50, and they're going to keep making offers that the union will refuse until there's no time left, and 50 is the only thing possible. I don't know if that's true. I actually would believe that the commissioner does not want that to happen. I think he would want a negotiated settlement. He's shown that in the past. He did not 
impose a pitch clock when he had the chance to. He's not done things like that generally. But the good standard of reference is a month from the time of agreement is when the season can start. There's no deadline right now, nothing like that. But if it's a month and they get an agreement within a week, then mid-July is realistic. Yeah, I, I've heard August 1st for several weeks, and I didn't want to believe it. It's, it might be time to believe it. So let's let's start thinking about a 50-game season, 50 to 60 games, whatever they think they can play. Let's remember the team that won the World Series last year started 19 and 31 <laughs> in their first 50 games. That was the Nationals. And it really makes you wonder about the even having a 50-game season, what the meaning of a season that short is. If they're only going to play 50 games or somewhere in there, should they even bother? I'd like to hear both of you guys answer that. Ken, start with you. I would say that any season is worthwhile. You cannot have your sport dark for 18 months, which is what it will be almost at that point. And you need to get some revenue and you need to kind of just keep things going. So 50 is better than 30 or nothing, but is it good? No, it's not good. And Jason, the Nationals analogy is perfect, and it shows why a 50-game season is not a viable solution, really. Fans are going to look at that and say, this is kind of stupid. This is not what baseball should be. And fans could understand 80 somewhere along those lines because, listen, we know what the situation is, is here. The country was closed for two months. And it's just opening up now. But 50, they can do better than that, in my opinion, and should do better than that. And that column you wrote, Jason, about how would we look at an 80-game season, right? How would we look at stats and all that? With 50, it becomes that much less legitimate. And that's a problem the sport would have to deal with. Would fans watch to the same extent? Would they consider the season real? Would they watch the postseason to the same extent? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, these yeah. are good questions, Doug. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's an opportunity, though. At the same time, I mean, it, it's like it's antithetical to the whole mindset of like you know four or five man rotations and structures we're familiar with. But I, I like talking to Dusty Baker a few weeks ago because he said, "Well, it's no longer a marathon; it's a sprint." And so teams will have to construct themselves differently. I'd be curious about seeing how baseball would try to innovate given that style, whether it's analytics, you know, Joe Madden was on talking about, you know, everybody's making the same car. That's what analytics have done. Everybody's using the same data, you know? So, you know, maybe it's a chance to break away, you know, do some hit and runs and I don't know, take away the- That would be interesting would be the urgency. Actually, in either- Yes. Yeah. Right. The urgency. You can't like mess around and say, I'm going to save this guy and uh, I'm pacing myself. No, you got to, you got to play today. If you're the Nationals, yeah, sorry, you go home. You're 19 and 31 and anything's possible. Then if they come up with a very interesting playoff structure, like the NHL or something, you know, round robin or I don't know, something fun that people could address that why baseball is always talking about, we lost some fans because we're slow and, Maybe they address that. I, I think if you have fun with it and know that it's an aberration, you could you could do something with 50 games. I mean, yeah, it's my University of Pennsylvania baseball schedule. It's it's weird. It's 40 games or whatever. But at the same time, you know, there's teams in college that do all kind of crazy stuff, college World Series tournament. So take the best of what works and do something with it. I, I know that's not ideal and 80 is, is better. Uh, the more games I'd say, the better. But they may not have that luxury. And 
like you said, the owners, maybe the economics work with all the losses at the gates, that 50 is the ideal scenario. They might be more amenable to keeping structures in place, like full salaries and things, like full prorated salaries. And that may be a better win for players going into 2021, when you can at least keep the structure of the economics intact. Well, this actually leads us into another topic that, that Kenya wrote about. Um, you could ha- you could play more games if you started August 1st. You could just do what is actually written into the March 26th agreement, and that is play regular season games through October and play the postseason into November. All of a sudden, MLB is pretty adamant now that it doesn't want to do that. Um, what? Why do you think they have drawn that line in the sand? Is this just about health and safety worries? They say it is. And they point to, among other things, the idea that universities want their students to be home after Thanksgiving, right? Semesters are going to end at around Thanksgiving because of this fear of a second wave and just the idea of getting everybody done as quickly as possible. So, Baseball is saying, well, why wouldn't we want to be done as quickly as possible ourselves? But at the same time, we don't know when a second wave would hit, if it would hit, and it's just kind of an open question. So I can see where the union is skeptical of that, but it's an odd scenario because here's the union, and they got to be concerned about health risks, right? That's their job, and it's something they need to be very mindful of, and yet they're the ones willing to take this seeming health risk by playing later and baseball is not. Now, what is the X factor here? The X factor is network television and Fox wanting the world series done before the election, most likely so they can get as many pre-election ad dollars as they can. That's obviously in their interest. So I don't know if it's just about health or weather as baseball suggested in their dueling letters with the union last week. Or the networks, probably some combination of all. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right that there's there's just a basic inconsistency in the players' position on this because they've been the ones talking about how much risk they'd be taking. Uh, they've been the ones behind the scenes uh, raising all kinds of questions about the health and safety proposals that were that were floated a couple of weeks ago. And that brings to mind health and safety, which you also wrote about. How much of that is settled? I I just wrote a piece about high-risk managers and coaches and whether they would have the right to opt out and how they feel about that. This is another big situation uh, with players. I mean, do you think that they have worked out how baseball will handle high-risk players? Or is this all to be negotiated still? Something that came out on Monday, Jason, is that MLB has asked players to sign an acknowledgement of risk waiver. That's designed to eliminate their ability to hold MLB and the clubs accountable if they do not create a safe work environment. Obviously, that's going to be something that would have to be talked about. And I was always under the impression that some waiver would be required, right? Because it's such an unusual situation. But... I don't know exactly how the union used that. I have to kind of ask that question today. So I don't know that it's completely settled, the health question, but it sure seems like that would not be the obstacle to a deal. The financial element would be the obstacle, not the health. 
And keep in mind, we talk about this and we're all aware of it, but we're not really focusing on it as we talk about the negotiations. Who knows what's going to happen once things get going? Who knows if the season will actually complete or be completed or if it will be interrupted in some fashion, if they'll have to end early, if there'll be no postseason. Some of what MLB is asking the players to do revolves around that idea of the possibility of the cancellation of the postseason. That's why they're adding money if the postseason is completed. So interesting. I, I mean, Doug, I just want you to we've, – we've talked about this in this podcast, but I want you to imagine, again, uh, you're a player. And the health and safety questions are, are still floating as you begin. Yeah. How concerned would you be? I don't know if you guys noticed that the NBA now has, has said they're going to test every day. That doesn't seem to be the baseball plan yet. Right. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, no, there's 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 high concern, and and I know when you're in a negotiation, it can seem like oh, you know, you're going to hide behind the health crisis, or, but this is something. Let me take a pause for a second, right here. Let me back up. <laughs> let me start again. Uh, you know, I know there's a perception that this health crisis can be something negotiating wise that you could hide behind, but this is a, a a very real and you know sort of present issue for everyone. And yes, players may make an individual choice to say, okay, I'm not going to play or I'm going to minimize certain things. I'll do the best I can with that. But there is a collective component because with the collective is where your risk can, can certainly increase. And there's no doubt that that's on the, the players' minds at all times. And that's why I'm concerned about this sort of imposition component to it because, you know, if you impose in that environment, even if you have the legal right to do so, you know, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well at all. And, you know, we, we you see, like, for example, the KBO in Korea, uh, they were, of course, in different circumstances than us at the United States. But the reality is they recognized that in given their systems, given the resources, they would shut the league down entirely if any player tests positively for three weeks. So, you know, is that the standard by which MLB is going to operate, the speculative of what could possibly happen if someone does test positive? Uh, what's the ripple effect? So the players' concerns, of course, are founded, as are the personnel all around the players in supporting baseball happening. So it's a very legitimate reason negotiation-wise to, to weigh that depending on what the outcomes of all these elements of the agreements do coming together, whether it's waivers and, and, and that's going to play uh, – front of every player's and every personnel member's mind and only time will tell like how they're going to fine tune that. Um, all right, let's, let's hover at 30,000 feet now and think about the big picture. Um, you know, can I tell you this all the time from my own experience in covering baseball labor talks, try not to get too caught up in the play by play because it always looks bad till it doesn't. In fact, I, I've often thought both sides actually want it to look bad because they want to create more pressure on the other side and more urgency. The big picture question is always what comes next. So what do you think comes next? Good question. I would say the union is going to counter this in some fashion, and it probably will be a counter that Major League Baseball doesn't like because, Jason, as you said, they're trying to create leverage both sides at all times and trying to go forward, et cetera, in that fashion. But I don't see now how the union can simply say nothing in response. They may say they don't like 
elements of that, but come back with something else and get the talks really going. Remember, we go like a week between proposals all the time here. And that shouldn't <laughs> be. Let's yeah. go. Move. Yeah. yeah, I I agree. And um, you know, I, I I always try to use the tennis match analogy to describe this. And you know, a tennis match, I hit the ball, you hit it back, you hit the ball, I hit it back. It's not how this looked. <laughs> this this is like serving practice. Right. I slam one over, you watch it go by, you ignore it, then you <laughs> slam one the the other direction. Uh, we we've got to get to a better place. And you know, I, I hear people all the time, even last week, as this seemed like it was devolving, say at some point the survival instinct kicks in, no matter which side you're on, and you realize. You need to make a deal. And this has been our hope for weeks, for months now, that sooner or later, that realization would strike these two sides. I'm, like, I've started to lose faith that that's how this is going to turn out. So if either of you guys want to reassure me, be my <laughs> guest. <laughs> well, I could, I might actually dash cold water on it, but as if I make an analogy of the Declaration of Independence, could you imagine following that? Day to day, the declaration, you know, <laughs> the, you know, this guy rode down the horse, he got shot off his horse, and then the papers got burned. I mean, every day it would be bananas, right? So now we're not dealing with the Declaration of Independence here, but you are dealing with a long-standing painful history that had some good years, had a couple of 20, 25 years of kind of peace. You know, so you know, you have these bloodlines that make it very difficult to get past some of the history. And some of that is has been constructive for the larger society. We've, you know, this is the strongest union arguably in in the world. I mean, there's certainly top five. And, you've, and some of the efforts that have been uh, forged through this dynamic has created some things that have benefit, whether it's defined benefits or many other examples. So, and the courts have certainly had to address a strong legal team in, in the Players Association. So now, of course, MLB, you know, has their own uh, pedigree of, of excellent negotiators. So what comes out of this does set the tone to a certain degree. And I don't expect it to be easy. I didn't expect it to be smooth. Uh, you would think even in, the pan in a pandemic that would change, but it hasn't. There's still a lot of things at stake that they see in their own righteous way. So uh, I, I do think it gets done. Uh, you, they see it more as a declaration of independence than they do like, you know, signing over, selling a house. <laughs> but uh, I, I agree with you. I do think what the players should do at this stage is make a counter proposal. And if you ask for more in the moon, so be it. But they should respond to this in a different way so that they keep it moving. I don't know if they will. Ken, what I do you agree think? with that. I would agree with all of that. Yeah. And again, just so folks can understand the union's perspective, they <laughs> believe that any suggestion of compromise is a suggestion that they're the ones who have this burden, when in reality, in their view, it's the owners. The owners are the ones who are determining, or at least making these proposals about pay, who want to establish a different standard than the March 26th agreement, which of course they have the right to ask for, based on pretty much everyone saying that now. That wasn't the case earlier, but that was another story. So I understand the union where they're coming from there, and I understand 
the owners and where they're coming from. It's great. We can all have these wonderful arguments, but at some point you got to get done and, and stop this and get to a point where you're playing a reasonable season. I would like to see at least 65 to 70 games. I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be that. And frankly, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be 80. They should be able to figure this out. <laughs> We've been saying that for two months. Um, I know. So, so Ken, what's, what is your instinct? You think ultimately they make a deal or Major League Baseball yes. forces these players to play? I do believe they make a deal. And I might be wrong in that assessment because the union has been so adamant about 100% of their full prorated salaries and the players are as fired up as they've been really since 94, 95. So perhaps they just dig in and say, go ahead, shove it down our throats. You know, let's, we'll go from there. That's tough. And that would not be a healthy outcome, but I can see it happening at the same time. A deal is just the best way to go. There's no doubt. So here's what we should do for them. We should solve this for them. Okay? <laughs> we should draw them a roadmap on how they can get themselves out of this mess and make a deal. I guarantee you, we could solve it easier than they can. And so I'm going to start, okay? I think, I think the solution here is to think bigger, not smaller. I do think the players ultimately should concede something on salaries for this year because they're that's the only way to get something done. But do that and trade it for some concessions for next year. I, I like the idea that's been floated about a minimum payroll for next season to guarantee that um, next year is not a debacle for all the players who are unsigned. So many, two-thirds of the players don't have contracts for next year. I also I like the player's proposal for – uh, for some postseason or off-season events like Home Run Derby, maybe even fitting in the All-Star Game somewhere that generates additional TV money that they could share. And I think a really smart idea would be to do what uh, what Ken, you and I suggested over two months ago on a, a column we wrote, and that is extend this current basic agreement so you're not negotiating a new labor deal in a year and change coming off two seasons that will clearly both be impacted by the pandemic. So that's my blueprint. What do you guys have? <laughs> well, <laughs> I just don't see any way they're going to do that because they can't <laughs> even agree on this shortened season. I know. And now we're going to ask them to extend the CBA by a year, a CBA that the players don't like to begin with. I know. I, know. <laughs> I just like to see them get through this, Jason. They're having enough hard, of a hard time getting through this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I structurally, I 100% uh, see what you're saying, Jay. I think if you can build some space, but they, I don't know what their economics are even going to look like in 2021. You know, once the aftermath of the the numbers and the data comes in, and we find out what the pandemic demic does if it continues, so they're probably going to be very cautious about, you know, any extensions. But ideally, yeah, that would be fantastic. But I, I, I see where we are now. I see it would be great for the players to go back building off of this counter proposal from the, from the owners and think about some 2021 concepts that structurally they want to go into it with so that they're in as best a position of strength. Uh, the owners may be able to then see the opportunity, uh, because you're, you're just losing a moment too about setting the tone about having a, a more perfect union. You know, baseball could be 
back in the front and center of the fabric of America as we're struggling through a lot of different issues, it could really lead here. And part of the leadership and part of the problem we're facing throughout our country is is just sort of constructive engagement, respectful discourse, and 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 unity. And this would be a good example of that. I know they've lost some some of that anyway historically, and even in the short term here. But they could they could set a quite a path forward. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to see it that way. Boy, that would be great. Um, I mean, let's let's wrap wrap that up this way. I I do not think that even if there's no deal, it will kill baseball. That baseball will die. But I do think that they are doing lasting, irreversible damage, and they may already have done that damage just be, just through all this fighting in this time and place. And so. Ken, uh, one last question. How much damage have they already done? How much damage do you think they could still do? And how do we get it in front of their faces so they realize how much damage they are doing? It should be in front of their faces. <laughs> I don't know if there's think? confusion about that. How much damage they've done is an interesting question because, Jason, as you pointed out, we're in the middle of it right now, and it always looks dark in the middle of these situations, but once the sport returns and hopefully next year returns in a way that looks like the sport we know with fans in the stands and 162 games and all of that, we've always seen the sport regenerate itself. It happened after the 94-95 strike with first Ripken and then the McGuire-Sosa home run chase and exciting things that happened, the rise of the Yankees, all of these different things. I have faith in the sport and I have faith in fans coming back to the sport but if you're asking if there's been damage you can just look at our twitter mentions there's been damage <laughs> people are ticked off you know that's not necessarily a reflection of society twitter i think we know that but there is some element of hey what's going on here let's go and i don't know that it affects things long term but we'll see where this ends up because it could affect things short term yeah, I was actually going to read some reader comments at the bottom of my piece and your piece, <laughs> that, that, but that that's way too depressing. And, uh, when Ken Rosenthal visits us here in Starkville, we do not leave depressed. Uh, no, happy uh, times. Yes, sir. So, yeah. Doug, I have an idea. Rather than take up all of Ken's time talking to us about these negotiations, uh, why don't we actually let him go back to work covering yes. these negotiations? Uh there's a reason nobody does that better because he doesn't waste all his time shooting the breeze with people like us. All right, Jason, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Always right, good to have Thank you, man. you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia, our way of involving you. Our favorite listeners in this show will tell you how that works momentarily. But first, here's this week's question. It actually comes from a good friend of mine, a guy named Christopher Freitas. And when he submitted it, he didn't even know that's what he was doing. <laughs> you know, most weeks we get these questions via Twitter and we had some fantastic questions tweeted at us uh, over the weekend. But I have to admit, I went into this thinking, hey, it's draft week. Uh, maybe somebody will ask us a draft-related question. And just as I was starting to sift through the questions on Twitter, my friend Christopher actually texted me a draft trivia question. <laughs> I looked at it and I realized we should use this on the show. So this is going to be the first listener trivia question submitted 
via text. Yeah, right. What a world. <laughs> okay. So uh, after that fascinating preamble, here is his actual question. Are you ready, Doug Glanville? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. How many players who were taken with the first pick in the draft, that's the first overall pick, mm. uh, since 1965 are in the Hall of Fame? Got it? How many players taken with the first pick in the draft are in the Hall of Fame? And I should admit that usually when uh, Christopher asked me a baseball question, I don't even understand the question, <laughs> let alone know the answer. But uh, this was a really good one, and I'm almost sure that I do know the answer. I, oh, I think wow. the answer is three. I think it's Ken Griffey Jr., mm. Chipper Jones, and Harold Baines. And I'll, I'll just talk this through with you, Doug. Uh, the hard part for me isn't knowing who's in the Hall of Fame. I, I was on the stage with all those guys <laughs> last July in Cooperstown. So I have a pretty good feel for who's in the Hall of Fame. The hard part uh, is remembering, all right, who was the first overall pick? Yeah. Uh, like, was Reggie Jackson the first pick in his year? Was Robin Yount? Paul Molitor. I know those guys all went really high the years they were drafted, but I think I got the answer. What do you think, Doug? Wow. I, I, well, Chipper Jones, I felt pretty comfortable listening to that because he, I'm sure, pretty sure he's number one, like in 1990 or something, because yeah, I played against him. Yeah, I played against him in A ball. So I felt pretty good about that. Yeah, Junior sounds good. I, I thought, I don't know. Dave Winfield, you know, what, what is it? I, you know, he's played a three sport athlete. I, <laughs> I, so yeah, but I, I had a lot of trouble with the draft slide. I mean, I know more, a little bit more around my era who was number one, but a lot of those guys, you know, they're just starting to get into the hall and, or they didn't make it. And so it's hard to even think. So I kind of have to defer to you on this one. I mean, I, I could throw some names around, but it would be totally throwing darts at the backside of a barn. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure I've got this one right. So let's bring in the mayor, Cam, to give well, us the answer. Well, this rare treat, Jason. You just chock full of confidence with the chips in the middle of the table. Well, you have a reason <laughs> know, to be right? confident. That's because you're right. Harold Baines was drafted Woo! first overall in 1977, Ken Griffey Jr. in 87, and Chipper Jones in 1990. However, Doug... Dave Winfield was drafted fourth overall ah, in 1973. Right. But overarching theme here, all these guys are in the Hall of Fame because they didn't shy away from big moments, much like Harold Baines did back in 1999 against the Boston Red Sox in Game 2 of the ALDS with this three-run homer. That one is hit deep in the right center field. Trump Nixon is going back. Still going back, and it's gone! Home run, Harold Baines. It's a five-run inning. John Miller on the call for ESPN back in the day. I just love the way John Miller yeah, John. calls a big moment. Uh, that was great. Uh, and we got it right. Uh, but <laughs> enough about James. us. I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, one thing we try to do in this segment is use that trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. Uh, so, Doug, here's what I think we should kick around on this one. Why don't we look at some current players who were the first pick in their draft and decide who has the best chance from that group to get to the Hall of Fame? Uh, I think these would be the names, and you can pick who you think. Uh, this is in no particular order. David Price, Steven Strasberg, Bryce Harper, Garrett Cole, and how about we'll throw Carlos Correa in there. Doug, who's the 
Hall of Famer from that group? Wow. Um, I, I, when you listed it, I kind of felt Jared Cole would be the one. You know, I mean, pitchers are scary because they get hurt, but he, he's just like in that dominant period. Of course, we're losing a lot of time here this season, but yeah, I, I worry about injuries with Strasburg and. You know, I mean, I know I, Harper. I I said, did I say he was going to hit all these home runs? But yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's just more of a wild card. We think Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll go with Cole. I have to pick one, or can I pick a, more than one? Well, I'm, I asked you to pick one. You okay, I'll say one. I'll say Garrett Cole. I'll say Cole. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Hey, that's a guy to watch. Twenty nine years old. Coming off that Cy Young runner-up season, could easily have won. You know, he has a better career strikeout rate than Nolan Ryan. Uh, and the arrow's pointing up. But I, I actually think the best choice here is uh, Bryce Harper. Uh, still only 27 years old. He's already got all this stuff on his resume. MVP season, Rookie of the Year season, six All-Star teams. And how about this, Doug? 219 career homers through his age 26 season. That's exactly as many homers through that age 26 season as a guy named Hank Aaron. So I think Bryce Harper has the best chance. Uh, Strasburg about to turn 32, never even finished higher than third in the Cy Young. Uh, Correa, I thought, was a guy who had a chance because he came up so young, won the Rookie of the Year so young, but has a hard time staying on the field only once in five years now, more than 110 games. And this will be the same thing this year. Uh, David Price, you know, as a Cy Young and two second place finishes and 150 wins at age 34. So not totally out of the question, but I, I think the correct answer is Bryce Harper. We're going to go with that. Uh, we got the trivia right. We're always excited <laughs> about that. Uh Thanks to me for getting it right. Thanks to my friend Christopher for making us look smart for a change. Good job there. Okay, one more thing before we go. It is draft week. So please read and follow our friend Keith Law in The Athletic for the best draft coverage anywhere. But you know what? Right here on this very show, we have a former number one pick just hanging around waiting to talk to us, Mr. Doug Glanville. And Doug, back in simpler times when we actually had baseball, we used to have a segment on the show called The Dugout. Yeah. Now we used to go there, we'd hang out, we'd listen to you tell us your many great stories. I know you got some classic draft <laughs> stories from uh, your experiences playing at Penn on the road to being the Cubs' number one pick. So let's all settle into the dugout while <laughs> Doug tells a draft story. Oh, wow. There, man, it was tough to think about. What story? But uh, there, there's one that's kind of funny and fun about scouting. So now keep in mind, back in the day, which is when I played, right? So this is 1991. So I go to an Ivy League school. So it's not like we had, you know, more than eight fans at the game. And so it's always noticeable when scouts are there because they pretty much outnumber the <laughs> amount of fans. <laughs> so, so I, I was, you know, it was very stressful my junior year because. You know, I, the, you know, I came from the Cape Cod. I won this Best Pro Prospect Award. It was like I was on the up, and I guess I would have been viral if it was today. So a lot of attention was paid. My phone is ringing at my <laughs> dorm, and it's and it's agents, and it's you know, it's everybody under the sun. It's reporters, and you know, it, it was it was intense. And my roommate, I drove my roommate crazy because I kept getting a phone call. <laughs> so 
So one day I go to our park, and now Bauer Field at Penn back in the day, which is now a rec center, a rec field, was a long walk from campus. I mean, and I used to, because we had no fans, I used to recruit people to come to the games, literally handing out flyers, like, here's where the park is. Nobody would come. So <laughs> Under the uh, Schuylkill Expressway, right? Yeah, you had to go like over yeah. this bridge. It was, like, it, was <laughs> right. just, it was just so far away, and the train yeah. was running in the back. So... I uh, so this one day I knew there's a lot of scouts going to be there, and I get there, and it's kind of scary because there's three cameras on tripods, you know they're getting all set up to film me, and you know from various teams, and and I think then I think the Major League Baseball scouting bureau was still around, so scouting had this like central body that would kind of share information or however it worked. You probably know better than I do for sure, and you know so now I'm kind of familiar that you know I'm on this track to be a first rounder. So I go to the dugout and I have batting gloves and I look up over the stands and this is pregame and there's all these scouts there, 20, 15, you know, some decent number noticeable. And so I decide, well, doing my pregame and we used to hit in the tee in right field. So we go down to right field behind the fence, sort of over the fence and we, I hit off the tee. So I noticed before pregame throwing warm up, they're all following me. And, and people in mind, there's nobody there. So they're all shifting wherever I go. <laughs> this group of like, you know, 10, 15 scouts or whatever, they're just following me. And uh, so I said, okay, this is interesting. A little stressful, but interesting. So I go to, go to the cage. I go, uh, not the cage, but right field. I walk down and this whole mob follows me. So I'm like, okay, that's kind of creepy. And when I get there, I realized that I f had forgotten one of my batting gloves. So they had walked all the way down the right field line. So I go and I have to walk back. <laughs> and then they all follow me back to the dugout. And then I get the glove and I go, oh, and then they follow me all the way. So halfway going back, the guy says, hey, Glav, are you messing with us? <laughs> so, you were actually, weren't you? <laughs> I, I, I just forgot my glove. So that was that was my draft year, and it was it was like that everywhere, every place. Uh, I missed a game to study for a final. I took some heat for that, but because um, they came and I t I did tell my coach, but they didn't get the memo, and because uh, it was snail mail probably. But it, it was uh, it was intense, and I'll, I'll always remember draft day. Get to share it with my brother, who taught me everything in baseball, and. And we got we got a, did a whole photo day, a whole photo spread from that day, of when the phone rang from the Chicago Cubs, and the closer to one o'clock, the better, because you're higher draft pick. And I think I got the call at like one fifteen or something, uh, with the Cubs telling me that congratulations, you, you're you're our first pick, you're your first pick in the draft for the Chicago Cubs. And yeah, it was it was a dream, you know, it was really. Surreal. I was very excited to find out who it might be. It was the Orioles at nine, the Angels at 17, which was Eduardo Perez or, or Manny Ramirez, who was 13, one pick behind me. Uh oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, that was my life. So that was, that was my draft, day, draft story. That was the day to day life of just getting scouted for this draft. It was pretty crazy. Good one. You forgot your batting glove and the Cubs picked you anyway and look how it all turned out. Here <laughs> you are. Right. Stuck talking to me. <laughs> all right. That's a wrap on this edition of Starkville. Let's remind you again, Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app 
and The Athletic website. Also, if you'd like to read our entertaining work or the entertaining work of any of our amazing writers, there's still no better sports writing being done anywhere than you'll find in The Athletic. And we are still offering a 90-day free trial, so if you've been thinking about subscribing, you can try us out free for the next three months. Just go to theathletic.com slash 90 free days. Finally, remember, you too can be part of this podcast and achieve those 15 seconds of fame that we bestowed just today on Christopher Freitas. You just need to submit a great baseball trivia question. And we'll get it wrong, but at least we'll use your question to inspire a fun topic of conversation. So how do you submit your questions, you ask? We can tell you. Uh, we, have an <clears throat> we have an email inbox for one thing. That would be starkvilleattheathletic.com. Or you can do what most people do and hit us up with these questions on Twitter. Doug, how would they tweet questions at you? Oh, yeah. Just at Doug Glanville, full name, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. All right. I'll spell two. I am at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's at Jason S-T. Just remember, hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville QS. That's Starkville with an E, Q-S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal for getting us up to speed on the labor talks. Thanks to the mayor, Cam, for producing. Thanks to you all for listening. We will see you soon on Starkville.